0: And for our scripture reading this morning, I just want to invite Nick uh, to come up. Morning, guys. I like your jumper. Thrasher. Do you skate? Yeah. (laughs) I wore this because I wanted to show support for Eric's home team, which he loves. Okay, I hope you like the sound of my voice because it's a bit of a long one. So today's scripture reading is Genesis 1, verses 3 to 31. All right, here we go. And God said, Let there be light. That's probably cheating. Like the Patriots. (laughs) All right. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, sorry. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let, the, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Sounds like we're going to be swimming in heaven. and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night And to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. Nearly done, guys. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening,
1: and there was morning, the sixth day. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, everyone. So last week, we started out talking about questions of origins, about who we are, and where we come from, and why we're here. And we said that if we really want to understand the answers to these questions, we need to understand the book of Genesis, at least if we want to understand the biblical answers to these questions. And so we started looking at Genesis. We, last week, we were introduced to the main character of the Bible, God. We saw that he is the great storyteller. And we saw that he made the world. And today we're going to see how he made the world, what happened next in this great story. And I'm sorry, I don't have slides today, so you'll just have to listen. Uh, But what we're going to see is that God made everything good because he is good. God made everything good because he is good. So we're going to start out uh, with just some brief comments on Bible versus science, because I know that's an important one when we're looking at this passage. But then we'll see God's power in creation, God's plan in creation, God's pleasure in creation, and God's people in creation. So it's, power, plan, pleasure, people. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, for this chance to gather. We thank you for your word and that we can look at it and study it and learn about who you are and who you've made us to be from it. Pray that you'd be guiding us as we look at your word today. Help us to understand more clearly who you are and to love you more deeply and to obey you and trust you because of our time here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we actually look at this passage today, I I think it's helpful probably to take a couple minutes to discuss the elephant in the room that's there whenever we talk about this passage. Can we really believe that Genesis one is true in light of everything that science says? I, I think it's worth it to take time to discuss this because for many people in today's world, like that is the question that actually makes them be like, I can't be a Christian. Like if Genesis 1, right the first page of the Bible says all this stuff that science says can't be true, like how could I believe all the other pages of the Bible as well? And in a group this size, I'm guessing there are some people who have questions either for yourself, like, can I be a Christian and, and believe that this is true in light of science? Maybe there are some parents who are like, my kids are growing up and they're being taught about evolution in school, and maybe I believe that this is true myself, but I don't know what to say to them when they come to me with questions. And so I thought it would be helpful just to take a couple minutes to look at this. Um, Can we really believe this passage is true in light of what science says about where the world came from and how old the planet is? And so a couple quick thoughts on this. One, you wouldn't know it from listening to debates in the wider culture today, but the Bible and science are not enemies, they're friends. Like if you, if you think about what's necessary for science to work as a discipline, you need a world where there is structure and order and predictability. And what do we see in Genesis chapter one right here? God takes a, a chaotic and wild world and he gives it structure and order and predictability. Those are the things that are necessary for science to exist. Actually, prior to Christianity becoming like a a major religion in our world, science as we know it didn't exist because they didn't realize the world is structured and ordered. They thought it was chaotic and wild. And it wasn't until Christians came along and said like, no, God has given the world structure and order that what we know as science today was able to take off as a discipline. And so the Bible and science are not enemies. They're actually, they're friends. And that's true in general, but what about right here in this passage? Like, is this account opposed to science? And I think a lot of people in our world draw this hard and fast line, like you have to be on one side or the other. Like either God created the world in six literal 24-hour days or Big Bang, evolution, 14 billion years. And they say, pick a side, who are you going to be with? But I think there are some issues with that approach of drawing a hard and fast line and being like, pick and choose, whatever. Like one, what if, this is going to sound crazy, but what if it's possible scientifically for someone to read Genesis 1 as six literal days that actually took billions of years? Now I know that sounds crazy, but there was this really smart guy named Einstein, and he came up with this thing called the theory of relativity that says time moves at different speeds in different places. And I am not smart enough to know all the math of how that works. But people way smarter than me have tried to do the math and show that actually if if the theory about the origins of the universe starting billions of years ago are true and originating from this single point, then actually for the first however long in the universe, a day could have taken billions of years as we know it now. Now, is that true? I don't know. I'm also not smart enough to look at the numbers and see if it actually adds up. But all I'm trying to say is it's possible that the different viewpoints available in interpreting Genesis aren't as wildly different as we may have been led to believe throughout our lives. The other thing is like the timeline, you know, six days versus billions of years sounds very different. But if you look at the order of events, presented here in Genesis 1, versus the order of events that the evolutionary scientists would say happened. It actually lines up fairly well with one another. There was a man named Edwin Bevan, and he once wrote an essay about this. It said, supposing we could be transported backward in time to see different moments in the past of our planet. We'd see it first in a condition in which there was no land distinguishable from the water, and only a dim light coming from the invisible sun through thick volumes of enveloping cloud. Sounds like day one, there's light, right? At a later moment, as the globe dried, and so the water above, the water below would spread out like day day two, land would have appeared, which happens on day three. Again, a later moment, low forms of life, animal and vegetable would have begun. So that's day three and a little preview of day five. Sooner or later in the process, the cloud masses would have become so thin and broken that a creature standing on earth would see above him the sun, moon, and stars. That's day four. At a still later moment, we should see the earth of great primeval monsters, day five and day six. And lastly, we should see the earth with its present fauna and flora and the final product, man. Right? Like the order of events is not that wildly different between this Genesis 1 account and evolutionary sciences account. And again, the timeline seems quite different. The order of events is quite similar. And when you look at the scientific record, this is the third thing, there there are several scientific events that actually seem to point to something like Genesis 1 and, and a more rapid creation of the animals than evolutionary science would typically lead us to believe. Have any of you ever heard of the Cambrian explosion? It's also known as the biological Big Bang. So basically, there was this period of time about 540 million years ago, they say, where over 13 to 25 million years, almost all the major types of animals in the world today just start appearing in the fossil record. If you're not good with numbers, that's a very short period of time in world history that happened a long time ago where everything just appeared almost at once. I mean, seems to line up with what's going on here, right? And so why do I unpack all of this? Am I trying to say we should all just believe these are six literal days and help us feel good about making that choice as thinking people? Like, no, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. There's actually, I think, some reasons for us to question whether the author of Genesis actually intended for us to read it that way. So for one thing, um, the language in this style or the language style in this chapter, it's different than the rest of Genesis, right? It's it's clearly telling a story, but it's got these structure to it. Like each day starts out with, and God said, and then it happens and it was so, and God sees that it's good. And then there's evening and morning this day. It's a, it's a genre that some theologians have called exalted prose, which means it's not pure poetry. It's still telling a story like prose, but it's got some poetic elements to it. And when you're using poetic elements, poetic elements are not meant to be taken literally. And so there's there's reason to question, did the writer of Genesis even mean for us to take these days as literal days? One other piece of evidence that people point to, to to argue for that is if you get to the seventh day, the last day when God rests, we're actually never told that the seventh day ends. So days one through six, God does all this stuff and then you get to the end and there's this formula. There was evening, there was morning, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And then day seven, we don't get that. And many theologians believe that's because actually God's rest on day seven is meant to continue beyond just one day into as he supervises and guides world history, that it's actually a period much longer than 24 hours that God rests. And it's really interesting. If you ever study the book of John, John actually sets up the work of Jesus and his death and resurrection as almost an eighth day of creation, right? It's a really interesting thing to study sometime. But these theologians argue if the seventh day, this pinnacle that creation's been building to is actually meant to be longer than 24 hours, why should we expect the other six days to be a literal 24 hours as well? And so in light of that, I I think it's fair to question whether Genesis 1 was ever meant to be read as six literal 24-hour days in the first place. And if you're freaking out right now because you're like, the pastor's telling us not to take the Bible literally. One, the order of events in Genesis 2 is actually different than the order of events in Genesis 1. So if we're supposed to read it all literally, you're in trouble there right? Because it's just telling you a different order of events and we can't take them both literally. Um, But second, we're not necessarily supposed to take all of the Bible literally. We're supposed to take it seriously according to what the author was trying to communicate through it. We're supposed to interpret it literarily according to the rules of literature, right? Which means that if someone's using poetic language that's meant to be taken maybe more metaphorically, us insisting on interpreting that literally is actually us interpreting it wrongly. And so um, we should be taking the Bible seriously. We should be looking at the Bible as God's word. But part of that is, is actually asking the question, what is this trying to say to us? And doing the work to understand that. So all that said, I mention this stuff about the Bible versus science for a few reasons. First, there's just so much we don't know about the world where it came from, how it got to be in its current form because we weren't there, right? And there are so many different interpretations that people take in terms of trying to understand where Genesis 1 fits into everything, whether that's the world was created in six literal 24-hour days 6,000 years ago or whether that's God somehow worked through an evolutionary process that started almost 14 billion years ago and many, many things in between to try to make sense of what Genesis 1 is saying. And because we don't have clear black and white answers spelled out for us, I think this is an area where in the church, we need to have a lot of grace for one another, a lot of patience with one another if people have different views than us. The Bible is very, very clear about a couple main things like God did it, If you're trying to give an explanation of where the world came from that leaves God out, that's clearly out of bounds from what the Bible is saying here. Um, The world is not the result of random chance. It's put together, orderly way by a caring and present God. But in terms of how exactly he did that, I think it's okay for us to disagree on this and still love one another and treat one another with kindness and respect. Um, In the sermon today, by the way, I'm going to refer to it as six days because that's how it's spelled out for us here, but I'm not saying through doing that, you must believe that it's six 24-hour literal days. Second, I mention this just because if you're concerned that, oh, being a Christian means I have to like leave my brain at the door and come in to follow Jesus, like that's not the case. There are plenty of brilliant people who believe the Bible is true. and Christianity, it's not trying to shut down your brain. It's actually trying to help you become the fullness of who God created you to be. Third, and this is maybe the big one, If you look at all these questions about Genesis one and how it fits with science and you're just like, I'm not smart enough to understand that. I feel totally overwhelmed and don't even know where to start in studying this. I wanna remind you, despite the impression that you might get from some people in the world, the central truth claim of the Bible is not that God made the world in six literal 24 hour days. The central truth claim of the Bible is that Jesus is God, that he died to pay the price for our sins, that he rose again in victory over death, and that through him, we can have a new relationship with God, but that's the main thing. And if you're confused about Genesis one, and you don't even know where to start and trying to figure that out, I'd suggest don't start there. Start with the question of who is Jesus? Because here's the thing if you look into who is Jesus and you come to this conclusion that like he wasn't actually God, he died and stayed dead, never rose again, like you don't have to worry about Genesis 1 because the whole rest of the Bible is garbage if that's the case. But if you do this research, and you find, as I believe you will, if you really look into it deeply, that Jesus was and is the Son of God, that He rose in victory over death, that He is reigning over the universe right now at God the Father's right hand, and that He's gonna come one day in judgment and rule over everything forever. Then you, when you come to this question of Genesis 1, take some of the weight off of it, right? Because you can come to it realizing like, this is a secondary issue, I already know the answer to the bigger questions. And so I would encourage you, start with Jesus and then come to Genesis 1 relaxed, knowing the biggest, most important questions are settled in your mind. And then the the final thing I want to just mention here is that in all these discussions about Bible versus science versus timeline of Genesis 1, it can be so easy to lose sight of so many big things this chapter is actually trying to tell us because we get so caught up in this discussion that we lose sight of what's actually happening in the passage. And it's a shame because these are the things that I think God really wants us to see here. And so in light of that, the rest of the sermon today, we're actually gonna try and unpack some of the things that God wants us to see from today's passage. And the first is God's power in creation. God's power in creation. We started last week saying God has set up the Bible as a story, not in the sense that it's not true, but in the sense of it's a true story. It has characters and conflict and plot. And in this chapter of Genesis, we are introduced to the main character of the Bible, God. And this chapter focuses on him a lot because up until the very end of the chapter, he's the only character in the story so far. And so the first thing we see about God in today's passage is that he is powerful. He is so powerful. Each day of the six days of creation, God speaks. He gives a command and it happens consistently every single time. God is powerful. The effectiveness of his word and of his commands happening, it's never in doubt. He is absolutely powerful. If you look at uh, other creation accounts from the ancient world, so many of them start with this conflict between different divine beings, where one of them uh, either creates humanity as a way of getting back at other gods, or maybe one of them kills another one and chops up their bodies and those become humanity. There's some weird stuff out there. But in the Bible, there is no conflict. There is no one and no thing that could stand in God's way or prevent him from accomplishing everything he wants to accomplish exactly as he wants to accomplish it. And as he creates, he he demonstrates his power by speaking and having things happen. He demonstrates his authority by commanding the things that he has made, giving commands to them, and by naming them, giving names like light and darkness. He has power and he has authority. And we'll see later in the Bible, in passages like Colossians chapter one and Hebrews chapter one, this power that God has of creating and giving life and commanding and having his commands happen. It wasn't only put into use when he made the world. It's actually the same power that he uses to sustain the world today, every day, moment by moment. God is powerful. He has absolute power over everything all the time. Theologically, this is a doctrine known as the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Sovereignty just means God is absolutely in control of every detail, of every moment, of everything in the universe all the time. Absolutely in control of every detail, of every moment, of everything in the universe all the time. Or on a more personal level, God is is absolutely in control of every detail of every moment of your life. God is absolutely in control of every detail of every moment of your life. Good and bad, he is in control. Now, does that sound scary to you or comforting to you? (laughs) Both, yeah. And here's the thing, the answer to whether this is good news or bad news ultimately comes down to the question of whether God is good or not, right? If God is good and he loves you and he's working for your good, then this is going to be the most incredible news ever because the one with all power is on your side and working for your good. If God is not good, or if God doesn't care about you and what happens to you, then him having such control and power over your life is terrifying news. And so, Let's keep looking at the passage, see what else it tells us about God and see whether it can give us any hints about whether his sovereignty and power in our lives is good news or not, okay? So the next thing we need to see here is God's plan in creation. We saw last week, at the start, the world was without form and void. It was chaotic, it was empty, and then throughout the six days of creation in today's passage, God fixes that problem. On days one through three, he gives form and order to the formlessness. And on days four through six, he fills the emptiness. So days one through three, it gives structure and order to the realms where we operate in life. On day one, he he creates light and separates the light from the darkness so that we can have day and night. On day two, uh, apparently back at the start, there was just like water slash vapor continuously from the bottom of the sea up to the top of the sky. And on day two, he he separates that out. So we have the atmosphere up here and we have oceans down here and we have space between the sea and sky. And then on day three, he dries up some of the water. So we have land to live on. Aren't you thankful for that? We don't have to just live in the ocean all the time. And then he puts vegetation on the land. And then once everything is ordered and structured and ready for life, he fills it. On day four, he, he takes the light and dark from day one, and he fills them with sun, moon, and stars. On day five, he takes the sea and the sky—I did that backwards—the sea and the sky from day two and fills it with fish and birds. And then on day three, he takes the dry land—sorry, day six, he takes the dry land from day three and fills it with animals and humanity. He gives order and structure, and then he fills it up. And what does this tell us about God? He has a plan. He's structured. He's a God of order. He knows what he's doing. From the start, he has a finished product in mind that he's working towards and he knows what it will take to get there and he does it. It's true in creation. It's true in our lives, which is amazing, fantastic news that doesn't always feel like good news. You know what I mean? If not, let me explain. It's amazing, fantastic news because the God who knows everything and has all power has a good plan for us and he's not gonna give up on us until that plan is completed. That's amazing. But we don't have all the details that God has. And so sometimes him doing this and working out this good plan just feels like terrible, bad news to us. It's kind of like with my, my three-year-old. Sometimes, um, he gets upset because we don't let him just eat ice cream all day long. Right? And we do that for him not because we hate him, not because we want to make him miserable, but because we know actually eating ice cream all day will make him miserable. Right? He'll have a stomach ache, he'll get this sugar high, and then he'll crash, and it's just going to be a mess. And we want him to grow up to be a mature, responsible adult someday. And we know, even though This doesn't make sense to him yet. We know mature, responsible adults can't just eat ice cream all day long, but he doesn't get that yet. And so when we say, no, you can't just eat ice cream all day, it feels to him like we hate him and like we want him to be miserable, which is the farthest thing from the truth. It's just that we have more information than him. And so we make decisions for his good that seem cruel and mean in the, morning, in the moment. And it might take decades before he actually understands mom and dad did this because they love me. Now, if that's true on a human level, with such flawed people like Justine and me, that we can have more information than our child and make choices that, that feel mean but are actually good, how much more can that be the case on the level of God? who has perfect understanding and knowledge of everything throughout eternity and into the future, right? Like you and I, we don't always know what's best for ourselves. We can look back on situations and be like, oh, this happened because that happened. But we actually don't know what would have happened if something else had happened at that first event and and what train of events that would have led to but God does and he can look at the whole picture and he can see what series of events is best for us. And because he's sovereign, he can work it out in the best way possible for us because he knows things we don't. And so he'll sometimes do things for our good that don't feel good to us at all. There are gonna be times where God does things for us that are for our good that we just look at and we're like, God hates me right now. He must be so mad at me, but that's not the case. Genesis 1 shows us that's not true. God is all-knowing. He has a plan with a beautiful, glorious finished product in mind. It's true for the universe. It's true for each of our lives, which means we can trust that he loves us and cares for us and that he's working for our good, even when it feels like he's not, because he has a plan, and his plan is for our pleasure, which is the next thing we see about God in this passage. God's pleasure in creating. See, God doesn't just create for the sake of creating. He creates for the sake of joy and celebration. Did you notice that? Throughout this passage, there's a continual celebration going on. Everything God makes, after he makes it, he stops and he looks at it and he evaluates it and they all get the same evaluation. Even the spiders, he says it's good. Every single thing that he makes, he he stops, he looks at it, he evaluates it, he says it's good. I don't know if this is true about you, but I think it is because I think it's just a general human thing. I think as human beings, we have a tendency to get so caught up in all the different things we need to do in life that we just don't ever stop to look at what we've done and evaluate it. We just move on from one thing to the next thing to the next thing on our checklist because there's always more to do. And so we never stop. We never appreciate the joy of a job well done. We just have to keep going. And when that happens, we're never able to experience joy from the things we've accomplished. But throughout this process of creation, over and over and over again, God stops. Almost every day, sometimes twice in a day, he stops to recognize his work and call it good. He is a God of pleasure. And guess what? We're told at the end of the passage, he created us in his image, which is a huge topic to cover. We don't have time to go into it in any adequate level of depth today. But on one level, what this means, if he is a God of pleasure and we are created in his image, it means we are created to experience pleasure as well and to share in his pleasure. Another way that God's sovereignty is good news for us. He is a God of pleasure and he wants us to be able to share in and experience that pleasure ourselves. And to clarify, his goal isn't just to give us passing pleasures here and now that are gonna fade away in a moment. His goal is to give us the greatest possible amount of pleasure possible over the course of eternity, which means sometimes he'll allow us to go through tough times now for the sake of greater pleasure later on. Sort of like how we save money right now, don't live as luxuriously as we could for the sake of having more pleasure in retirement, right? We, We get that concept of a little bit of suffering now for the sake of more pleasure later. I think we just enjoy it more when we get to make that choice ourselves in the areas that we choose to do it rather than having God choose for us when and how that's gonna happen. But how good news is this? The God who is in complete control of everything, who has a plan and knows how to work that plan to completion, is a God who celebrates goodness and works for our pleasure. That's what we see right here in Genesis chapter 1. The last thing I want us to see today is God's people in creation. God's people. Look at the people he created. Because after all this creating, after he makes everything, everything in the entire universe, he saves the very best for last. He creates something special, something designed to be like him so that this creature can rule over everything that God has made. Finally, another another character is introduced to the story. And we know right from the start that this character is gonna be a very important one because this character is like God. And again, you could spend... A long time unpacking the implications of what it means for us to exist in god's image i just want us to see three things right now about it first you and everyone around you is valuable it doesn't matter what language you speak what color your skin is how much you make in your job how educated you are you are valuable everyone around you is valuable i was once here at this school helping with an event run by a group called Young Life. They do outreach stuff to teens. And the, the person leading the event was doing a short talk on the section in the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. And he, Jesus says, aren't you so much more valuable than these birds? Don't you think God's gonna care more about you than he does about the birds? But he p- provides for the birds, so he's gonna take care of you. And so this speaker, she was like, you guys, On this campus you see birds flying around all the time imagine those birds like 30 students in the room they're like okay we got it she's like do you think you or the birds are more valuable and important you know what almost every student in the room said the same true story that really happened and hopefully that response is shocking to you and sad to you, but, but here's the thing. If the story of naturalistic evolution, that there is no God, we're all just the product of blind random chance. If that's all there is, that we just evolved from apes, no involvement from God, if that story is true, then their answer is right. We're all the product of bl- blind random chance. The birds are all the product of blind random chance. We're all just here sharing the earth. We're all gonna die someday. What makes us different than them? Nothing. We are no more valuable or important than they are. But these verses right here in Genesis 1, they reframe our understanding of the world and our place in it. They tell us that we are special. You notice with the birds, on the day that God makes the birds, He actually commands the earth to bring forth the birds and the fish. But on day six, when when God makes humanity, He says, let us make man in our image. He doesn't just tell the earth to spring up humanity. He steps down and he makes us himself because he cares about us because we are special. Even if you believe God created life through evolution, biblically, it's saying if that happened, something happened at the point where humanity began, where God stepped in, interrupted and changed the process to create something special like him. As humans, we're not just another animal. In no way, shape, or form are we equally valuable to the birds. We're infinitely more valuable than the birds because we have the king's image stamped on us. You know, even with earthly kings, we understand this idea of like their image has value. It needs to be treated with respect. In some countries, there are even laws against defaming or insulting pictures of the king. On March 4th, 2022, uh, a Thai man was sentenced to two years in prison for putting a sticker on the picture of the king. They said it was insulting the monarchy. Now, is putting a sticker on a picture a crime worthy of two years in jail? Seems a little excessive, right? But it depends on what the picture is and what you're trying to accomplish by putting the sticker on it. If it's a picture of a king and the country has laws saying his picture needs to be treated with respect because he's valuable, that means it needs to be treated differently than every other picture. So even on a human perspective, we understand things that bear the image of the king need to be treated with greater respect. But if that's true of human kings in the lands where they rule, how much more true true is it of the king of the universe? God put his image on you you are valuable, you are important. You deserve to be treated with respect and kindness. Don't let the people around you make you lose sight of the fact that God made you important and valuable. But also remember, it's not just you that's infinitely valuable, it's also everyone else around you. They deserve to be treated with respect and kindness by you because they bear the King's image. Every single person you interact with every single day, regardless of their age, their education, their income level, their skin color, their job, how many times they've annoyed you, they bear the king's image and they deserve to be treated with kindness and respect. Even if they're at a point where for some reason or other they can contribute nothing to society, they're just bedridden, they still bear the king's image. They deserve dignity and value and respect. They're important. God putting his image on humanity means we all have incredible, immense value. That's the first thing we need to see about God's image. Second, this passage shows us what our job is as humanity. It says our job is to have dominion. We are here as God's representatives on earth to rule over the earth that he made. That doesn't mean I'm in charge, I can do whatever I want. It's more like being a property manager, Right? We've been doing some research in our family re- recently about um, the real estate industry and rental properties. And one of the things, if you have a rental property where you don't live is you get a property manager to look after it. And the property manager can make all sorts of decisions about this property. And they're functionally running things as like the landlord from day to day, but it's not their property, right? They have authority from you, the owner, to do lots of stuff, but ultimately There's a limit to how much they can do and what they're supposed to do because the property isn't theirs, it's yours. And we are the property managers for God on this earth. And the owner of this earth, he loves the world he made. He enjoys the world he made that he put us in charge of. He worked to bring order and fullness into this planet. And so that means as the property managers from God who rule over it, we're not allowed to just rape and pillage the planet and destroy it. Our rule over the earth is meant to increase order and fullness and goodness on this planet, just like God was doing. And as we get into the story of the Bible further, we're going to see when we do this well, things go well, not just for us, but for the entire planet. And when we do this poorly, things go badly, not just for us, but for all of creation that we're meant to be ruling over. So you get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they eat the fruit. And what's the result? Thorns and thistles come up from the ground. Creation suffers because of their disobedience. You move forward to Genesis 6, and it says God sees that the thoughts and intentions of humanity's hearts are only evil all the time, continuously, and he decides to wipe out humanity. But what else gets wiped out? Almost every single animal on the planet, along with humanity, they suffer because of our disobedience. Even before sin entered the world, God gave us a job to do of ruling over creation, of being his stewards to bring blessing to the planet, of continuing to bring order and fullness to this world that he made. And that's still our job today, to bring order and fullness, whether that's through being a stay-at-home mom who makes sure the family has food to eat and clothes to wear, whether that's through being a teacher who teaches students and, and prepares them and equips them for doing jobs in life, whether that's through being a banker who makes sure that Finances are coming into the economic system so that companies can operate. Whatever it is that we do, God has given us a job of bringing order and fullness as his stewards on the earth. And then the third thing that's so important to know from us being made in God's image is that God can be known by you and me. You know, there are some people out there who believe God is just so much bigger than us, so different than us. That if there is a God, there's not really any way we can know who this God is. And therefore, all religions are equally true. They all have a little bit of the truth about God, but none of them can really know God. But if God really made us in his image, that means this viewpoint is not true. Yes, God is quite different from us in many ways. We're never gonna be completely like him. But the fact that he made us in his image means that he's not totally and completely different than us. There are areas of overlap. We can know him. We can understand him. He's hardwired us from the start in such a way that we can know who he is and have a relationship with him. And as we're going to see in in a couple weeks, we lost that relationship by refusing to trust Him and refusing to obey Him. But the great story of the Bible is that when that happened, God didn't give up on us. He didn't say, oh, you blew it, so too bad. No, he, He actually took another step to make Himself even more knowable to us by becoming one of us. And in the person of Jesus, He came to earth, He died to pay the penalty we deserve for our disobedience. And through trusting in Jesus, you and I can have a genuine relationship with God today where we truly know who he truly is and have a relationship with him that we were created for. Church, God loves you. He showed it by using his power to create a world of pleasure according to his plan. But he also showed it by making you valuable and with the ability to know him. And as if that wasn't enough, he showed it by becoming one of us so that we can once again have that relationship with him we forfeited through our disobedience. God has a plan for you that's good. He can be known by you and he wants you to know him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for this book of Genesis and the things that it shows us about you and how you work in our world and just your amazing goodness to us. We thank you that you are in control of every detail of our lives, and that that's wonderful good news for us, God. I pray that you give us perspective this week to see the goodness of that good news, to trust in you, to love you, to know you. I pray that we would treat the people around us with respect and dignity because of the fact that they bear your image and we love you. And so we wanna see your image bearers be blessed and treated with dignity. In Jesus' name, amen.